0: In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Followed him to the stand and testified that it had been fired from Longfellow's colt. Then Ranger Captain Nelson took the stand. His testimony was about what he had given me at the embassy with the exception that the Bonnie's admission that they had shot Ambassador Cumshaw was ruled out as having been made under duress. However, Captain Nelson's testimony didn't need the confessions. The cover was stripped off the air-car, and a couple of men with a power dolly dragged it out in front of the bench. The Ranger Captain identified it as the car which he had found at the Bonneville jail. He went over it with an ultraviolet flashlight and showed where he had written his name and the date on it with fluorescent ink. The effects of the A.A. fire were plainly evident on it. Then the other shrouded object was unveiled and identified as the gun which had disabled the air-car. Colonel Hickok identified the gun as the one with which he had fired on the air-car. Finally, the ballistics expert was brought back to the stand again, to link the two by means of fragments found in the car. Then Goodham brought Kettlebelly Sam Bonney to the stand. The mayor of Bonneyville was a man of fifty or so, short, partially bald, dressed in faded blue Levi's, a frayed white shirt, and a grease-spotted vest. There was absolutely no mystery about how he had acquired his nickname. He disgorged a cut of tobacco into a spittoon, took the oath with unctuous solemnity, then reloaded himself with another chew and told his version of the attack on the jail. At about 10.45 on the day in question, he testified, he had been in his office, hard at work in the public service, when an air-car, partially disabled by gunfire, had landed in the street outside, and the three defendants had rushed in, claiming sanctuary. From then on, the story flowed along smoothly, following the lines predicted by Captain Nelson and Perros. Of course, he had given the fugitive shelter. They had claimed to have been near to a political assassination, and were in fear of their lives. Under Sidney's cross-examination, and coaching, he poured out the story of Bonneville's wrongs at the hands of the reactionary landowners, and the atrocious behavior of the Hickok-Goon gang. Finally, after extracting the last drop of class-hatred venom out of him, Sidney turned him over to me. How many men were inside the jail when the three defendants were claiming sanctuary?" I asked. He couldn't rightly say. Maybe four or five. Closer twenty-five, according to the rangers. How many of them were prisoners in the jail? Well, none. The prisoners was all turned out that mornin. They was just common drunks, disorderly conduct cases, that kind of thing. What turned them out so's we could make some repairs. You turned them out because you expected to have to defend the jail, because you knew in advance that these three would be along claiming sanctuary, and that Colonel Hickok's ranch hands would be right on their heels, didn't you?" I demanded. It took a good five minutes before Sidney stopped shouting long enough for Judge Nelson to sustain the objection. "'You knew these young men all their lives, I take it. What did you know about their financial circumstances, for instance?' "'Well—' They've been ground down and kept poor by the big ranchers and the money guys. Then weren't you surprised to see them driving such an expensive air-car?" I didn't know as it's such an expensive—he shut his mouth suddenly. You know where they got the money to buy that car? I pressed. Kettlebelly Sam didn't answer. From the man who paid them to murder Ambassador Silas Cumshaw? I kept pressing. Do you know how much they were paid for that job? Do you know where the money came from? Do you know who the go-between was, and how much he got, and how much he kept for himself? Was it the same source that paid for that recent attempt on President Hutchinson's life?" "'I refuse to answer,' the witness declared, trying to shove his chest out about half as far as his midriff. on the grounds that it might incriminate or degrade me.' You can't degrade a Bonnie, a voice from the balcony put in. So then, I replied to the voice, what he means is incriminate. I turned to the witness. That will be all. Excused. As Bonnie left the stand and was led out the side door, Goodham addressed the bench. Now, your honor, he said. I believe that the prosecution has succeeded in definitely establishing that these three defendants actually did fire the shot which, on April 22, 2193, deprived Silas Cumshaw of his life. We will now undertake to prove—' Followed a long succession of witnesses, each testifying to some public or private act of philanthropy, some noble trait of character. It was the sort of thing which the defense lawyer in the Waitley case had been so willing to stipulate. Sidney, of course, tried to make it all out to be part of a sinister conspiracy to establish a Solar League Fifth column on New Texas. Finally, the prosecution rested its case. I entertained Gail and her father at the Embassy that evening. The street outside was crowded with New Texans, all of them on our side, shouting slogans like, "'Death to the Bonnies! and Vengeance for Cumshaw, and Annexation now!" Some of it was entirely spontaneous, too. The Hickocks, father and daughter, were given a tremendous ovation when they finally left, and followed to their hotel by cheering crowds. I saw one big banner lettered, Don't let New Texas go to the dogs, and bearing a crude picture of a Zasroff. I seem to recall having seen a couple of our marines making that banner the evening before in the Embassy patio. But—' CHAPTER Ten. The next morning, the third of the trial, opened with the defense witnesses, character witnesses for the three killers, and witnesses to the political iniquities of Silas Cumshaw. Neither Goodham nor I bothered to cross-examine the former. I couldn't see how any lawyer as shrewd as Sidney had shown himself to be would even dream of getting such an array of thugs, cutthroats, sluts, and slatterns into court as character witnesses for anybody. The latter, on the other hand, we went after unmercifully, revealing, under their enmity for Cumshaw, a small, hard core of bigoted xenophobia and selfish fear. Goodham did a beautiful job on that. He seemed able, at a glance, to divine exactly what each witness's motivation was, and able to make him or her betray that motivation in its least admirable terms. Finally, the defense rested, about a quarter-hour before noon. I rose and addressed the court. "'Your Honor,' While both the Prosecution and the Defense have done an admirable job in bringing out the essential facts of how my predecessor met his death, there are many features about this case which are far from clear to me. They will be even less clear to my government, which is composed of men who have never set foot on this planet. For this reason, I wish to call, or recall, certain witnesses to clarify these points. Sidney, who had begun shouting objections as soon as I had gotten to my feet, finally managed to get himself recognized by the court. "'This Solar League ambassador, your honor, is simply trying to use the courts of the planet of New Texas as a sounding-board for his imperialistic government's propaganda.' "'You may reassure yourself, Mr. Sidney.' "'Judge Nelson said. "'This court will not allow itself to be improperly used "'or improperly swayed by the Ambassador of the Solar League. "'This court is interested only in determining the facts regarding the case before it. "'You may call your witnesses, Mr. Ambassador.' He glanced at his watch. "'Court will now recess for an hour and a half. "'Can you have them here by 13.30?' I assured him I could, after glancing across the room at Ranger Captain Nelson and catching his nod. My first witness that afternoon was Thrombley. After the formalities of getting his name and connection with the Solar League Embassy on the record, I asked him, "'Mr. Thrombley, did you, on the morning of April 22nd, receive a call from the Hickok Ranch for Mr. Cumshaw?' "'Yes, indeed, Mr. Ambassador. The call was from Mr. Longfellow, Colonel Hickok's butler.' He asked if Mr. Cumshaw were available. It happened that Mr. Cumshaw was in the same room with me, and he came directly to the screen. Then Colonel Hickok appeared in the screen, and inquired if Mr. Cumshaw could come out to the ranch for the day. He said something about super-dove shooting. You heard Mr. Cumshaw tell Colonel Hickok that he would be out at the ranch at about ten-thirty? Thrombley said he had. And to your knowledge, did anybody else at the Embassy hear that? "'Oh, no, sir. We were in the Ambassador's private office, and the screen there is tap-proof.' "'And what other calls did you receive, prior to Mr. Cumshaw's death?' "'About fifteen minutes after Mr. Cumshaw had left, the Zisroff Ambassador called, about a personal matter. As he was most anxious to contact Mr. Cumshaw, I told him where he had gone.' "'Then, to your knowledge, outside of yourself, Colonel Hickok, and his butler,' "'The Zisroff Ambassador was the only person who could have known that Mr. Cumshaw's car would be landing on Colonel Hickok's drive at or about ten-thirty. Is that correct?' "'Yes. Plus, anybody whom the Zisroff Ambassador might have told.' "'Exactly,' I pounced. Then I turned and gave the three Bonney brothers a sweeping glance. "'Plus, anybody the Zisroff Ambassador might have told.' "'That's all.' "'Your witness, Mr. Sidney.' Sidney got up, started toward the witness stand, and then thought the better of it. "'No questions,' he said. The next witness was a Mr. James Finnegan. He was identified as a cashier of the Crooked Creek National Bank. I asked him if Kettlebelly Sam Bonney did business at his bank. He said yes. "'Anything unusual about Mayor Bonney's account?' I asked. Well, it's been unusually active lately. Ordinarily, he carries around two-three thousand pesos, but about the first of April, that took a big jump, quite a big jump, two hundred and fifty thousand pesos, all in a lump. When did Kettlebelly Sam deposit this large sum? I asked. He didn't. The money came to us in a cashier's check on the Rancher's Trust Company of New Austin, with an anonymous letter asking that it be deposited to Mayor Bonney's account. The letter was typed on a sheet of yellow paper, in basic English. Do you have that letter now? I asked. No, I don't. After we'd recorded the new balance, Kettlebelly came storming in, raising hell because we'd recorded it. He told me that if we ever got another deposit like that, we were to turn it over to him in cash. Then he wanted to see the letter, and when I gave it to him, he took it over to a telescreen booth and drew the curtains. I got a little busy with some other matters, and the next time I looked, Kettlebelly was gone and some girl was using the booth. That's very interesting, Mr. Finnegan. Was that the last of your unusual business with Mayor Bonney? Oh, no! Then, about two weeks before Mr. Comshaw was killed, Kettlebelly came in and wanted fifty thousand pesos, in a big hurry, in small bills. I gave it to him, and he grabbed at the money like a starved dog at a bone, and upset a bottle of red perma-ink, the sort we use to refill our bank seals. Three of the bills got splashed. I offered to exchange them, but he said, hell with it, I'm in a hurry, and went out. The next day, Switchblade Joe Bonny came in to make payment on a note we were holding on him. He used those three bills in the payment. Then, about a week ago, there was another cashier's check came in for Kettlebelly. This time there was no letter, just one of our regular deposit slips. No name of depositor. I held the check and gave it to Kettlebelly. I remember when it came in, I said to one of the clerks, well, I wonder who's